reading from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 17th chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory be to you, Christ. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life, that we know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I am them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have known, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the Gospel of Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray together. And I'm going to pray once more the the prayer that Paul prays over the Ephesians, as it is much a prayer for them as it is for us. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Would you be seated, please? We are standing on holy ground, moving Paul to drop to his knees in awe and wonder. Here we are being permitted to look through parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. Many moments in my study this week, eyes glistening with tears, I fought the urge not to preach this morning for fear that I would diminish the glory, the beauty, the grandeur. Just what drops Paul to his knees? <laughs> Just what does he want us with him to behold? Paul was a faithful Jew. So throughout his life, three times a year, he ascended to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. He would celebrate in the temple the centerpiece of Jewish worship, where heaven and earth met, where the Shekinah glory of God descended. But everywhere you looked in the temple, signs and symbols cried out, no access, entry is barred, tremble in fear, trespassers will be prosecuted. Upon his approach, Paul would walk through the court of the Gentiles, outside of the walls of the temple, divided off with a four-and-a-half-foot barricade called the dividing wall. At regular intervals along the wall, signs read this, No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. As a Jew, Paul could pass through, walk up the 14 steps, through the gate, and into the court of the Jewish women. Jewish women were allowed closer than the Gentiles, but no further. As a man, Paul could walk further into the court of the Jewish men. But there he had to stop. Beyond that would be the court of the priests, and then at the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, divided off with a curtain. Only one person was allowed in there, the high priest, one day a year, day of atonement, bells on his robes, a rope around his waist, such that if he didn't offer the sacrifices in the right manner with the right heart, and the holiness of God consumed him, signified by the bells stopping their jingling, the other priests could drag him out by way of the rope tied around his waist. Every sign and symbol cried out, No access, no entry, tremble in fear, trespassers will be prosecuted. Everywhere you looked, divisions were cemented, given spiritual significance, division between priest, commoner, man, woman, Jew, 
Gentile. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, with this background in mind, Paul has been reveling, glorying, worshiping in light of what Jesus has done. In Jesus, you have access. In Jesus, the the God who burns with holy fire, you can call upon as Abba, Father. In Jesus, the dividing walls have been broken down. All are welcomed in. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. In Jesus, you are ushered into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies. And if that were not glorious enough, In Jesus, the living God takes up residence in you. You are the temple of the living God. That's the truth that brings Paul to his knees. That is the holy ground on which we tread. That is what sparks Paul to pray as much for the Ephesians as for us. So just what is he praying for? And how will such a prayer be answered? And where do we go from here? So what and how and where? So first, what is he praying for? In some ways, the the prayer is a little odd. Because he's praying for things like that Christ would dwell in our hearts. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. Things that he's already said are true of us in Jesus. It would be like us praying for a sunny day on a sunny day. Why would you pray for something that's already true? Because Paul wants us to experience the truth. To taste it. To feel it. To be flooded with it. Why would he pray for such a thing? Because experiencing these truths is not a foregone conclusion. An experience of this is something that must be pursued in prayer. Now I want us to notice how Trinitarian this prayer is. Paul names Father, Son, Spirit. Trinity. He's opening us up to the nature of the experience that he's praying for. Now, Christians have a very unique perspective on the nature of God arising out of the Scriptures. Followers of Jesus believe that at the center of the universe is a relationship. That God is one being who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. The the Trinity means that God is, in essence, relationship, relational. Now, what does that relationship look like? On the opening verses of Jesus' prayer from John 17, he gives us a window into that. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. What does that mean? To glorify means to praise, to enjoy, to delight in. In his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller says this, The inner life of the Trinity is characterized by mutual self-giving love. As each person of the Trinity moves around the other two, orbits around the others, pouring love and delight and adoration into the other. And the early church had a word for this. They called it perichoresis. And you can hear within that word our word for choreography. 
They were picturing this beautiful dance of love, adoration, enjoyment, delight within the relationship that is at the very heart of the universe. And that is the only way that we can say that God is love, right? Because if God did not exist as a relationship, we could only say that God is love after he creates something to love. No. For as Augustine put it, God is at once lover, beloved, and love itself. God is the one that loves, the one that is love, and the one that is loved. Now, when you read the scriptures, you'll find these commands of God inviting us to love Him, delight in Him, glorify Him, worship Him, orbit our lives around Him. And some people reflect back, wow, how selfish of God, how self-centered of God, that, that He would want that of us, that He would need that of us, but God doesn't need that. For all eternity, within himself, the members of the Trinity have been loving, glorying, delighting, orbiting, worshiping. He commands those things, not for his sake, but for our sake. That we would know joy. That we would know love. That we would know delight. That we would know him. This is the good news of Jesus, writes Daryl Johnson. The God who is love draws near to me, a mere sinful mortal, to draw me near to himself. In order to draw me within the circle of lover, beloved, and love itself, to become a co-lover with God. This is the very reason for my existence, for your existence, and for every other person who lives or has ever lived on this planet. And you know that that is the very purpose for which we worship, for which we gather, to participate in the life of the Trinity, to be caught up into the adoring, delighting, glorifying, loving relationship that is God. As James Torrance puts it, worship is participating through the Spirit in the Son's relationship with the Father. And Paul prays that we would experience that, taste that, feel that. The love out of which we were made, for which we were made, and to which Jesus has rescued us. Paul's prayer was answered in the life of Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher. When he died, they found that he had sewn into the lining of his jacket a journal entry. In fact, every new jacket he got, he took that journal entry out and sewed it into the next one so that it would always be close to him. And it read this. In the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 until half past midnight, fire, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac and Jacob, not of the learned or the philosophers, certainty, joy, certainty, joy, 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 tears of joy. May God never leave me. Let me not be separated from you. 
And Paul's prayer was answered in the life of Dwight Moody, minister from Chicago in the late 19th century. He came to New York, and he said one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Can you imagine an experience of God's love? You must say, stop. It's too much. Paul's prayer was answered in the life of Teresa of Avila. She talks about it in a similar way. She was praying and all of a sudden consolation, sweetness, light, she said. This prayer was glorious foolishness, heavenly madness. I was bewildered and inebriated in his love. My soul desired to cry out and was beside itself. It could not bear so much joy. Paul prayed for them. And he prays for you and for me. That we would be drawn up into the life of the Trinity. That we would experience and taste and feel. <laughs> that is what Paul prays for. But just how does he envision such a prayer would come about? Power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Power in accordance to the riches of God's glory. Power through His Spirit. Power to be strengthened in your inner being. Power to have Christ dwell in our hearts. Now we often think of our hearts as the seed of our emotions. But when Paul uses the word heart, it's a word that's synonymous with our inner being. It's the root of our personality the drive shaft of our very existence, the operating system by which you navigate your world. It's a mixture of feelings, of intellect, of will. Paul is praying that the Spirit be released into your life such that everything that makes you, you, would be flooded with the love of God. It is to say if the love of God emotionally lifts you up, it hasn't yet affected the way you live. It hasn't yet come to your heart. It is to say that if you get excited about his love intellectually, but it doesn't change the way you feel or the way you look, live, it hasn't yet touched your heart. If Christianity is something you do because it just has to be done, but it hasn't yet flooded your mind or emotions, then it hasn't yet touched your heart. And Paul prays that once it touches our heart, that we would mine its depths. That you would know how broad his love is. Wide enough to cover all people. Yes, even them, even him, even her. Deep enough to reach to the deepest, darkest recesses of the human heart. Deep enough that no one and nothing is beyond his love. Long enough that you will be caught up in his love for all of eternity high enough to exalt you to the heavens. Frank Lehman was a California businessman who at the beginning of the last century lost everything. And so he had to go to work packing oranges and lemons just to make ends meet. One night he went to a church service 
And in that service, he became so overwhelmed by the love of God that he couldn't sleep. And he began to write a hymn over the course of the evening and as he was packing the oranges the next day. And when he got home that night, he began to write it down. And he could only get out two stanzas. And every hymn worth its weight in those days had three. So he remembered that one day he had been sent a postcard that had on it an anonymous poem that had been found etched into a wall in a prison 200 years before. And he rummaged through all of his correspondence and he found it. And the poem fit perfectly with the meter and melody of his hymn. And the poem read this. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Even in Lehman's loss and poverty, even in that anonymous prisoner's lot, the love of God held a richness, a freedom that lifted hearts to heaven. Paul is praying for you, such that the power of the Spirit would be released into your life, such that everything that makes you, you, would be flooded with the love of God. This prayer is actually the turning point of Paul's letter, as Paul moves from theology to praxis, as if to say, to the degree that the love of God rests upon your heart will be the degree to which you live in keeping with the new creation that Jesus is bringing. The more you taste the love of God for the world, the more you will love the world that God has made. The more you rest in the love of God that crossed infinite barriers to meet you, you will cross barriers to meet the other in love. William Barclay put it this way. We need power to know this love so that we can bear with people that their unpleasantness and maliciousness will never drive us to despair, that their folly will never drive us to irritation, that their unloveliness will never alter our love. And Paul uses two images to describe this way of being in the world. He says, rooted and grounded. One image is agricultural, the other is architectural. Rooted in the love of God for you. The more you draw on his love, the more the fruit of your life will express that love. Not only rooted in love, but grounded in love. Our sure foundation built upon it. That no matter what life brings our way, no matter what losses we face, sorrows we encounter, pains we bear, our confidence in his love will never falter. Never be shaken. Bring it on, Lord. <laughs> Come into our lives in power that we might know your love. Be rooted and grounded in it that your love would flood every molecule of our being. Bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. But now lastly, where do we go from here? 
be quite fair to end the sermon here, trusting that this is the power of the Spirit at work in us. But that doesn't mean that we don't participate in that work. And I think there are three quick movements that Paul invites us to. First, to pray, to yearn for a taste of his love, and having tasted it, yearn for more. Second, wrestle it down, pin his love to the mat. Paul uses that word that prays that we would comprehend or grasp his love. He uses a word that means to wrestle, to, to jump on somebody, to overpower them, and to pin them to the ground. He's saying the Spirit is giving us power that we might wrestle down God's love, pin it to the ground. And the Psalms give us an incredible amount of stories of people doing that very thing. As the psalmists are navigating the deep currents and movements of their hearts and lives, they're wrestling with God's steadfast love and they're pressing it into the circumstances they're facing. Some of you this morning maybe now dealing with guilt. You've done something for which you wouldn't want anyone else to know. And that guilt keeps you from fully accepting God's love for you in Jesus. Fully receiving his call on your life because you feel unworthy of it. Wrestle his love down into that part in your heart. Pin it to the mat. For his love is deeper than your guilt. Some of you right now are wrestling with bitterness and anger and resentment. Wrestle his love down to that place in your heart. His love is broad enough to include even that person. Ask for his love for them to be recreated in your heart so that your bitterness and anger and resentment don't end up consuming you. Some of you right now are dealing with anxiety, despair, hopelessness. Wrestle his love down to that place in your heart. His love is long enough to reach to eternity. His love is at work in you in power, making everything new in you and through you. Wrestle it down, pin it to the mat. Third, we need community. Paul prays that we would grasp with the saints. We need one another. First John says, no one knows the invisible God, but he's known in the love we have for one another. We don't often share personally how God has impressed his love upon us. That's private, we think, or the other person might feel, why is God not doing that for me? But, but God gives us such tastes, such encounters, not just for our sake, but for all of our sakes, that we would grasp his love together. Pray, wrestle it down, live it out in community. Here we stand on holy ground, moving Paul to drop to his knees in awe and wonder. Here we're being permitted to look through parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. At the beginning of Jesus' prayer from John 17, the son says to his father, the hour's come, it's time for you to glorify your son and for the son to glorify you, the father. The hour has come. We're about to witness the glory of the triune God. And what is that glory? It's the cross. 
For every time that Jesus in John speaks of the hour, he's referring to his death. A death on a cross. To say there, there at the cross, that grotesque Roman tool of torture, death and shame, we see the glory, the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Father, the glory of the triune God. How can we say such a thing? Because there at the cross, we see the triune God centering his being around us, focusing all of his love on us. Us, finding his joy in us. For at the cross, every barrier is removed. At the very moment of his death, that temple curtain to the Holy of Holies, 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, a foot thick, was torn in two from top to bottom. There at the cross, you and I are invited in into the very life of the Trinity to participate in the eternal relationship of God, delighting, enjoying, worshiping, loving, and Paul is praying that we would taste that, experience that, feel that glorious reality. And as glorious as that prayer is, Paul is moved further still to a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, more even than this, according to the power at work within us, to him, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.